the ordinary response to atrocities is to banish them from consciousness. Certain violations of the social compact are too terrible to utter aloud. This is the meaning of the word unspeakable. Atrocities, however, refuse to be buried. Equally as powerful as the desire to deny atrocities is the conviction that denial does not work. Folk wisdom is filled with ghosts who refuse to rest in their graves until their stories are told. Murder will out. Remembering and telling the truth about terrible events are prerequisites both for the restoration of the social order and for the healing of individual victims. When the truth is finally recognized, survivors can begin their recovery. But far too often, secrecy prevails and the story of the traumatic event surfaces not as a verbal narrative, but as a symptom. Judith Herman, Trauma and Recovery. Hey guys, welcome back. On this podcast, I talk a lot about trauma, trauma-informed and symptoms of trauma. Well, so far, I've talked about it more in passing than really deep dived into it. I talk about how survivors of domestic violence, their children, and sometimes even the people who act as a support and safety network can be survivors of traumatic experiences. And this comes up a lot because understanding trauma, how common it is, and how it works, especially how it affects the way a survivor interacts with the world is crucial to being an ally. So today, we're taking the time and doing an actual deep dive all about trauma, how common it is, where it comes from, how it works, and of course, why it's so important that we take this time and really understand it. That's today on the DV Discussion. First up, I want to give a little trauma in a nutshell, a brief overview of the history of trauma. According to Judith Herman's amazing book, Trauma and Recovery, psychological trauma can look like the following. Intense fear, helplessness, loss of control, and threat of annihilation. So situations that are abnormal, but not rare. Not something you see every day, but things that we have a non-zero chance of seeing in our lifetimes. Things like a death in the family, a car crash, or domestic violence. This hasn't always been the case to the extreme detriment of anyone who has experienced trauma. Historically and presently, traumatic events have been depicted as kind of rare. In 1980, the American Psychiatric Association even said, quote, outside the range of the usual human experience. The most common example we think of is a soldier of war. And for the longest time, things like trauma and PTSD were only assigned to vets who had seen active combat. I mean, the term shell shock came from a British psychiatrist, Charles Mayer, during World War I. But even soldiers, however, have faced huge barriers when they sought help for trauma. Many were described as moral invalids who lacked character, who ought to suck it up because they had faced even worse things. There were even psychiatrists in the early 1900s, including U.S. Yale, 
who advocated that these soldiers be punished using shame and electroshock therapy and things like that. Some military authorities even advocate that soldiers suffering from trauma should be court-martialed or discharged dishonorably. It wasn't until World War II where finally a couple of American psychiatrists determined that there is no such thing as getting used to combat. The cultural pushback against recognizing psychological damage was so great that even men who were heralded as heroes to our country were unable to seek help for the longest time. And due in part to this mentality, it wasn't until the 1980s where the trauma typically reserved for combat veterans was able to be applied to survivors of rape and domestic violence. It took trauma and PTSD being legitimized in combat veterans to be recognized in survivors. Not only is trauma more common than historically viewed, it has long lasting consequences for those who experience it. Trauma can permanently alter the way a person acts, thinks, feels, and responds, even in ways that we don't expect through things like being a bit more irritable than normal, having strong emotions at provocations that might seem normal, AKA triggers, trouble sleeping, insomnia, being able to startle easily, that kind of things. Survivors can experience triggers, flashbacks, a loss of trust in faith, family, and society, and a lost sense of self. But the same mentality that saw the effects of trauma and combat soldiers and connected their symptoms to a lack of moral character also led to survivors of domestic violence being misdiagnosed and still to this day being misdiagnosed as having mental illnesses. You're not traumatized. You're, you just lack the brain capacity. You just don't have a proper brain. This has created yet another barrier to recovery and even to a survivor's existence after a traumatic event. Actually, one of the many stereotypes that is a barrier to survivors is the belief that women who are in abusive relationships are there because they either deserve to be there or they have a mental disorder. This is why understanding trauma, you know, how common it is and the effects it has on people is so important. Mislabeling a rape or domestic violence survivor as bipolar versus someone experiencing the effects of trauma is re-victimizing for the survivor. It cuts them off from resources they need and it deprives them of the recognition and acknowledgement that something horrible happened to them. It undermines their beliefs and faith in our society, in our systems of justice. And unfortunately, our society has constantly fallen at this hurdle. In 1968, a group of scientists studied a bunch of women who reported being beaten and abused by their husbands. The study, so titled The Wife Beater's Wife, even published this in its abstract. And I'm quoting here from the actual paper. You can look it up if you want to rage read something. Quote, a family structure is characterized by the husband's passivity, indecisiveness, sexual inadequacy, the wife's aggressiveness, masculinity, frigidity, and masochism. And this paper even concluded that this structure is more or less an effective solution to mutual needs. 
Again, studying women whose husbands are beating them. In one case, they even convinced one of the wives she was provoking the violence, poke, 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 and showed her how to fix it. Potato, potato. She says she's being beaten. They say she's mentally disturbed and has masochistic personality traits. These days, our society, for the most part, has accepted the effect of war on soldiers and legitimized PTSD. However, we still have yet to fully understand, utilize, and even acknowledge the cause and effect of trauma on survivors. What makes a traumatic event different from a normal bad day is that a traumatic event will generally involve a threat to life or safety or a close encounter with violence and death. At the moment of trauma, the victim will be so overwhelmed that they are helpless and terrified already and then any action they take to fight back fails. And this causes the victim to become overwhelmed mentally, emotionally, and physically. Now, survivors of domestic violence experience this at the hands of someone they love and trust. And domestic violence will create these feelings of helplessness, powerlessness, and terror in a way that is repetitive, not just in those single incidences of physical and sexual abuse, but all forms of abuse on a continuous spectrum. And the survivor is constantly seeing the person who is abusing them, exposing them to more trauma. Moreover, because domestic violence occurs in an intimate relationship, there's also that extreme breach of trust and interpersonal connections. I mean, often in moments of terror and helplessness, a person might cry out for a source of comfort, like God or a family member. George Floyd, while he was being murdered, cried out for his mother. When this plea is unanswered, it can create feelings of abandonment, which lead to these broken relationships with faith, friends, and family. I should note here, trauma looks different for everyone. Some survivors of domestic violence may be extremely traumatized and others may not. This is because everyone's definition of what is overwhelming is different for every person. In his book, Healing Trauma, Peter A. Levine, PhD, discusses the causes of trauma are based on an individual's perception of an event. A person can become traumatized when their ability to respond to a threat is in some way overloaded, like old Microsoft Word, the thunk, everything freezes, right? So this means that a traumatic event can impact a person in obvious ways, in subtle ways, ways that you or I might find traumatic, ways that you and I might not find traumatic, I might find traumatic, you may not find traumatic, all kinds of things like that. But either way, the individual who becomes traumatized has no way to respond to it. So just remember, one person might consider something traumatic and another person might not. Two survivors can respond in different ways to the same experience of domestic violence. Even if two family members experience the same traumatic event, the individual members of that single family might react differently. Also, 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 I want to mention, traumatic events are not a sign of emotional or psychological weakness. They are typical reactions to 
the traumatic experience in this case of being beaten, being terrorized by an intimate partner. Judith Herman indicates that the most powerful determinant of psychological harm is the character of the traumatic event itself. Individual personality characteristics count for little in the face of overwhelming events. There is a simple direct relationship between the severity of the trauma and its psychological impact. One last thing, because of this, comparing trauma is pointless. I know it's kind of a cultural thing wanting to compare and contrast stories. Well, this happened to me. Well, my day was worse because of this. Well, my day was worse because X, Y, Z. Trauma cannot be quantified. There is no like, this incident gives you four trauma points and that one gave you 10 trauma points. Trauma is trauma. However it might look to a person outside that traumatic event, it should always be considered with compassion and empathy. I want you to imagine something with me. Picture a machine with a bunch of cogs that are turning in unison to power it and every piece is crucial to its function. They're all clink, 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 turning together. You there? You there? Good. Now imagine taking a hammer in your hand, raising it above your head and boom, smashing it down on one of the cogs. The piece will be broken and the machine frozen in time at that moment of impact. There'll be bits of like broken glass and bobs here and there, maybe a bad smell, maybe like a sparking sound. Okay, it's broken, basically. Over time, the broken part can be replaced, the shattered bits will be swept away, but the machine is fundamentally different. There's a new cog to replace the old one. Maybe it's a slightly different color. Or now there's a bit of a humming sound that didn't exist before, a subtle shaking from part that's still bent out of place somewhere. In this analogy, the machine is like a human brain and the hammer is trauma. In moments of danger, the human body engages in a flight or fight response. Adrenaline floods the brain and the body prepares to act to defuse the threat. All the focus is on that immediate threat. So things like hunger and fatigue and, oh, did I leave my stove on? Did I close my garage door? The brain's like, no, 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 guys, guys, that's insignificant. Put that aside. We got to focus. There is a threat. We got to get ready for action, right? It's discarded. So far, so normal. And this isn't a conscious response. The body has this natural self-defense system that just, boom, goes into this. And under normal circumstances, the body would respond and then in the future remember what happened so that if it encounters this again, it can quickly kind of go back there and react the way it did before. It's when that fighting or running can't deal with a threat, the body's self-defense system just gets overwhelmed. It goes, wait, why is this failing? And when that happens, when the natural defense system fails, the result is like smashing a cog in that machine. Normal physiological reactions get scrambled and the result produces lasting symptoms. For the machine, it was that new part that had a different color, maybe that little humming, that right? In a person, it's things like hyperarousal re-experiencing events, aka triggers, and something called constriction slash avoidance. 
These three responses are typically most associated with PTSD. However, these reactions can apply whether or not a person is actually diagnosed with PTSD. So we're going to kind of dive in and explain them. Number one, hyperarousal. Hyperarousal occurs when the body continues to kind of stay in that flight or fight response even after the danger is over. It's kind of like your whole nervous system just kind of unplugs and disconnects from the present. The poet Robert Graves actually wrote upon returning to civilian life from World War I, quote, I was still mentally and nervously organized for war. Shells used to come bursting on my bed at midnight. And even though Nancy shared it with me, strangers in the daytime would assume the faces of friends who had been killed. Survivors who are hyper aroused can startle easily. They're constantly on the lookout for danger, even when it seems like, hey, it's broad daylight, middle of the street, people around, things that appear safe, they are still scanning for danger. They can react with irritation to really small provocations, and they can experience nightmares and night terrors. Judith Herman observes that traumatic events appear to actually recondition the human nervous system. The body systems that are responsible for responding to traumatic events go on this like permanent state of alert as if danger might return at any moment. We gotta be prepared, guys. Don't, don't relax, don't relax. Wait, that quote from Harry Potter, constant vigilance. Side note, I'm not saying Harry Potter, but JK Rowling is anti-trans and don't idolize her at all. Okay, anyways, going back. Survivors do not have a normal baseline level of alert anymore or a state of relaxed attention. Instead, their new baseline is one that is highly aroused and always, always on guard, looking for danger. And over time, these systems can dull, but trauma can be reawakened. It can be triggered by situations, by events, or something that can symbolize their abuse. We've come full circle to re-experiencing events. Number two, also called triggers. Again, check out last episode for a deep dive into triggers. But to briefly summarize, in case you don't have the time right now, a trigger can be a thing like a sight, smell, an anniversary, color, movement, something that the body sees and returns to that fight or flight reaction felt at the original moment of trauma. It's tied to it. And when triggered, a survivor might experience reactions ranging from discomfort, emotional, physical distress, physical symptoms like shaking, things like that. Any event or situation attached to that trauma that might seem insignificant because it is now associated and linked to that trauma in the mind and body of a survivor has become a trigger and seeing that indicates danger. It's a big flashing neon sign, danger, danger, do not touch. Lastly is constriction. Number three, also called avoidance. This is where a survivor seeks a form of numbness. They just want to detach themselves from anything that reminds them of the trauma. In constriction, the survivor will attempt to avoid all circumstances associated with the trauma, and they might withdraw from people to create a barrier of safety, emotional safety net. Constriction slash avoidance is tied to the third reaction in the flight or fight response. Yeah, you thought there were two, there are three. We're at number three and number three, it's perfect. We have flight, fight, and the third one is freeze. This response, the freeze, involves 
shutting down physical reactions to the violence that's occurring. So perceptions might be numbed, sensations might be dulled, and survivors might have feelings of being unable to move or their body might instinctually freeze just to survive the trauma. It's, it's a safety reaction. It's the body's way of trying to protect. It's been described as some as leaving the body and watching like a scene from a movie or from a third party perspective. And women might be more likely to have this reaction, especially if they've been socialized both by culture and religion that they should just yield in the face of powerful events. Our culture has a long history of portraying women as sexy and desirable, but so weak and fragile compared to a man. A man comes and boom, she is down for the count. And also we like to shame women who are seen as powerful. We describe them more in terms of like bitch and bossy and oh, why are you so nasty? On the campaign trail, Hillary Clinton, love her or hate her, faced a ton of sexism over the fact that she is a woman being described as not having the stamina because, you know, she's a woman. But considering this is the environment that we are just soaking in, that we as women are weak and we can't fight back and we shouldn't fight back, is it really any wonder that in a moment of trauma, it's really, really hard to advocate for ourselves? And also, we need to recognize that on top of all of that, survivors usually don't consciously choose whatever it is they respond with. Flight, fight, or freeze. This is the body choosing it for them. And now on to the language of trauma. Yep, it has its own language. It's that big a thing. Because trauma occurs during that flight or fight response that we just talked about, the brain automatically shuts down things it doesn't think it needs. And the result is survivors often have trouble remembering events that are traumatic as easily as other memories. Traumatic memories are more likely to be attached to sensations and images rather than language. The Citroen Traumatic Stress Foundation wrote, quote, there is evidence that trauma is stored in the part of the brain called the limbic system, which processes emotions and sensation, but not language or speech. For this reason, people who have been traumatized may live with implicit memories of terror, anger, and sadness generated by the trauma, but with few or no explicit memories to explain the feelings. Basically, the traumatic memory is stored in such a way that it's difficult to speak about, but easy to feel. As Patience Mason in the Trauma Gazette observed, quote, many trauma survivors forget in order to survive. This isn't always the case. Obviously, there's always exceptions to the rules. For example, sometimes a survivor can tell an advocate the exact moment during a trauma when they decide they were leaving. But for others, they can't recall certain or important aspects of the trauma, especially when it's as repetitive as domestic violence and they're just soaking it in every day. You know, again, people experience and react to trauma differently. For those who can't remember the details of their traumatic event, that could be the brain just protecting them to make sure that they survive. And again, 
certain types of traumas are more likely to result in memory disturbance. Some like, I don't know, repetitive trauma, such as domestic violence, might result in greater memory loss. Honestly, that was the case for me. There were times where if I sat down and tried to just write everything that I experienced during my abuse, it was actually really hard. But if I felt triggered, if I saw something that reminded me of an incident, suddenly, boom, it came flooding back to me. Psychiatrist Bessel van der Kolk suggests that during the abusive incident, survivors tend to dissociate emotionally and respond with this sense of disbelief that the incident is really happening. He suggests, to varying degrees, the memory of the battering incidences is dissociated and only comes back in full force during renewed situations of battering. And this can help advocates and help us understand why some battered women don't seem to fear that their abusive partners, you know, are still around after, you know, they've been physically abused. They may remember the actual incident, but the emotions of fear and terror that they felt aren't attached to that memory, that they were stored in a way that is different and maybe not as easily accessible. Now we know what trauma is, how it can permanently alter an individual who experiences it, and what these consequences look like. But how does this apply to survivors of domestic violence? Well, in my humble opinion, here are two of the biggest issues that we as a society really need to have a cultural reckoning with. One, trauma not being taken seriously, and two, not being understood even when it is acknowledged as a thing. And before you say, wait, what do you mean it's not taken seriously? Let's do an example together. Imagine you are in a car accident and it really freaks you out because being in a car accident is freaky. But the response from your closest friends and family, the people you trust and society as a whole day in and day out says to you, so what? Happens all the time. Get over it. Also, are you sure that you are actually in an accident? Your car doesn't look that bad. Are you misremembering? Wait, Maybe it wasn't an accident, you're just a bad driver. Why didn't you just drive better? That is basically how we respond to trauma as a society. We minimize, we deny, we act like the person who experienced it is at fault. That they are reacting to a terrifying incident. Even now, we know that traumatic reactions are normal. I mean, come on. Traumatic reactions and events are still not considered common, and we most think of them as only legitimate when connected with veterans of war. And it took men being so traumatized by a bunch of world wars, so traumatized it could not be ignored before it was considered legitimate. I mean, freaking hell, the men couldn't get it legitimized for years. Damn. And even now, it's still only kind of legitimate. It's still not taken as seriously as we need to take it. Okay, one more analogy, probably my last one, but no guarantees. I love them. Consider, 
when we are having a bad day, just a normal bad day, say you went to work and your boss was a class A asshole, being able to bitch to your friend, oh my God, you know what my boss said today? That feels really freaking good. And having someone validate how much your boss sucks is cathartic. It's the same with acknowledging trauma, but cranked up to a million. Not only that, but when a survivor experiences trauma, such as domestic violence, but finds that their friends and family and society fails to acknowledge or validate it, they find themselves hurt all over again. And this is when you might get constriction slash avoidance because they're, they might pull back then to protect themselves because they see danger in the people that they feel they should be able to trust. We talked about above, constriction can be a coping response in the moment of trauma where you feel detached, you feel numb, like you're seeing the scene from a third party perspective. But if you remain in that moment, it can be really harmful. And oh, it can happen when a survivor feels like they can't talk to their support network or they feel abandoned, they feel victim blame, or when their support system gets frustrated with them because the survivor has difficulty talking about it or doesn't act in a way they understand. All these things can set off constriction. Survivors turn away from support networks, including potentially therapist and support groups because even that is a reminder of the trauma and they are scared. Or the survivor might just be in denial because acknowledging it makes it painfully real. And during this time, constriction is all about coping through numbness, but that means that all feelings are blunted, not just pain. Happiness, sadness, the ability to experience joy and enjoy parts of your life that you loved before, that also gets numbed, which means that a survivor who is suffering constriction on the surface might appear like kind of okay because they're calm and stoic, but are suffering more than we realize. And then we get to part two of this issue, which is that survivors might attempt to recreate this numbness by abusing drugs or alcohol. It's not uncommon that we find survivors who have substance abuse problems and also along with dealing with the fact they have to deal with their trauma on their own and then deal with the health consequences and the numbing, society will then reject and judge them for using them, even though they turn to these substances because they feel like they cannot get support anywhere else. Ugh. On the flip side, a survivor might act out. They do, might do high-risk behavior, going out at night, walk the alley they were attacked, or self-mutilate because they are desperate to feel something. And now we turn to another major issue that we fail as a society. Even in the times where we say, yep, there's trauma here, I see trauma written on the wall, we can fail to understand what it looks like and how much damage and change it brings to the traumatized person. We've already talked about how failing to acknowledge trauma can happen and it often leads to failures such as misdiagnosing survivors as having mental illnesses. This is then cranked up to one million when we talk about perceived notions of what acceptable behavior to trauma looks like. Which brings us to a really good example of this, although a horrifying example, a rape victim. Culturally, we expect them to be really bloody and crying and 
broken and some of them are like that but not all of them and so assuming they're all going to be like that is really dangerous and that comes after we first attempt to blame them by questioning their clothing and their choices and state of mind how much were they drinking which i will say this till the end of time questions like that and assigning blame like that aligns ourselves with the rapist who uses the same tactics to silence their victims it's refusing to validate the survivor's pain and experience. Okay, just had to, had to throw that in because the more said, the better. But then going back to our preconceived notions of how rape survivors should quote-unquote act, we ask, did you scream? Did you fight back? Why didn't you just bite it? Why are you not sobbing hysterically? Why are you sobbing too much? Why can't you remember everything clearly? We now know that people experiencing trauma may try and fight or they might freeze and disconnect and the choice is subconscious and preconditioned by societal norms. And this disconnect may lead to them being calm afterwards or happy, whether other survivors might be emotional. All of this is due to the brain doing its thing, responding how it's going to respond in the way it best thinks will protect the person being traumatized. And also we realize that because the brain loves going into flight or fight, the incident might not be stored like a normal memory leading to gaps in the incidents. I mean, I've mentioned a case before, the case of Marie from Linwood, Washington, my backyard next door. Trigger warning, by the way, Marie was a young woman, she was 18, I believe, who was raped in her apartment. And afterwards, she appeared calm and normal and misremembered a few details during multiple interviews with the police they wouldn't let her do later. They had to do it right then. Oh, do it now while it's fresh. And her aunts, seeing her behavior, decided Marie was probably lying and making it up because, in her words, Marie wasn't acting how a rape survivor should and she had been assaulted and therefore she knew how a survivor should act and the police bought into that and basically thought okay she's lying let's charge her with making a false statement and then years later her rapist was arrested and charged after raping multiple other women yay great job police you guys are doing a bang up job some of the symptoms of trauma are more culturally well-known, like triggers. But because our culture refuses to validate trauma, it has led to triggered being weaponized against people who have different viewpoints. Triggered is the new hysteria. Last episode, please, for a deep dive into that, it is thorny all on its own. Because this focus is on certain and in some ways more visible symptoms, subtler symptoms are easily missed. Symptoms like irritability, disassociation, crying uncontrollably, being unable to feel anything but numbness, nightmares, sleeplessness, panic attacks, difficulty concentrating, irritability to minor provocations, an exaggerated startle reflex, feeling constantly jumpy, or things like having difficulty relating to people around you, losing interest, in previous hobbies that were exciting and fulfilling. Symptoms like nausea and chest pain. And not only that, the fact that survivors have to live with these sensations after the danger is over 
can make them feel crazy. This is why validation is so, so, so important, you guys. Survivors have a tendency to blame themselves and feel embarrassed at how they responded, especially if they freeze, even though they don't choose how their body will respond. And then they're set free into a world where they face victim blaming from people they love and know and trust, and also our society that loves to ask, why didn't you fight back? This contributes to them feeling alone isolated, unsupported, and crazy. And hearing these things can push a survivor towards self-blame and low self-confidence after an event that has already shattered their sense of self and safety. It's re-victimizing. At the end of the day, trauma is a lot to process. For us trying to understand it, you know, for those of us who experienced it without really understanding how it happens and how it affects us, and for those of us on the outside watching people we care about and people we know experiencing trauma, it's it's tedious. It's complicated. And you don't have to memorize everything from this episode. I, it was hard enough for me to put it in a format where I felt it was accessible. So I encourage you on your own time to do some more research, read trauma and recovery, do some Google searching, because this here today is a simplified version. But if you forget everything else, at the end of the day, please try and remember these couple things. One, trauma is common. It is impactful and can work in ways that seem confusing for everyone but the person experiencing it. Two, because survivors are most likely to turn to family and friends first, the best thing you can do every time is validate what the survivor is feeling and accept their choices and support them where they are. Validate and accept their choices. Resist using triggered as an insult on Instagram. Validate and accept the survivor's choices. Check yourself when your reaction is, is this person overreacting? If the situation were reversed, you would want someone who validated you and supported you wherever you are in your healing. That's it for this week's episode. If you want to reach out to us, any more questions on anything you've heard today or past episode, or if you have a suggestion you want to share with us, please email in at thedivadiscussion at gmail.com. We are also on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok is still up and running. Woohoo! At the DV discussion. We all have stories and they deserve to be heard. I'll see you next time. If you or someone you know is experiencing domestic violence, please call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1 800 799 72 you can also visit their website, thehotline.org. If you identify as an abuser or a word you might be an abuser, please call the hotline as well. They'll be able to help you. Please remember, you're not alone. <laughs>